Brave New Media. Hey, I'm Mahataki from BBC Media Action, and welcome to Series 2 of Brave New Media, a global podcast where brave creators of public interest media outlets tell their stories. In the first series, these stories helped us understand what it's like to run an independent outlet in a challenging environment. But this time, media creators from Indonesia, Tanzania and Ethiopia will tell us about the role their platforms play to serve the public interest and how this dynamic affects their interactions with political powers. To help us make sense of these stories, a specialist will unpack what we've heard at the end of each episode and will share the lessons to be learned. So, let's get started. In this episode, we're heading to Indonesia to meet the founder of a public interest platform who has faced intense backlash for sharing stories that challenge authorities. But just a heads up, this episode contains references to sexual abuse. This is a very difficult time for journalists around the world to remain a journalist. Or if he or she be able to remain a journalist, be an independent one. Is there any press freedom here in Indonesia? Yes. Yes, there is. But are there digital threats? Yes. Are there physical threats? Oh, yes. Interestingly, sexual abuse, sexual violence cases are one of the type of reports or cases in journalism that uh, can be categorized as very high risk, especially if you're a woman. It really makes those in power very worried when women speak up. That was Effie Mariani, who has been working as a journalist in Jakarta, Indonesia for 20 years. Effie used to be a managing director at the country's biggest English-language daily newspaper. But two years ago, she decided to set up her own media outlet with three others. Its name is Project Multatoli, after the Dutch author Edward Dowis Decker. He used the pen name Multatoli to expose the exploitation of the Dutch colonial administration in Indonesia during the 19th century. Effie and the other co-founders created Project Multatoli with the goal of disrupting the way that media operates in Indonesia because they believed that the thousands of outlets which are owned by a few oligarchs were failing to speak truth to power. We are the third largest democracy in the world. We have relatively better press freedom in Southeast Asia compared to Laos, Cambodia, Myanmar, uh, or even Thailand. We are a little better, but doesn't mean that we don't have any challenges. The thing is, Indonesia is very large. It's like uh, have like thousands of uh, language, different languages, thousands of ethnic groups, and some areas are very remote. And the development is very concentrated in Java and even in Jakarta. So we try to disrupt or criticize the dominant practice in Indonesian media industry, which we seen as somehow serve the elite more, also male centric and Jakarta-centric. There are issues that are like a sideline, like labor rights, indigenous people, 
uh, environmental destruction, victims of sexual abuse. Only a handful of politically wired tycoons own uh, large media groups, even though there's like a robust amount of media outlets, like thousands, thousands of them. Owner of uh, media outlets in Indonesia are like to keep close and good relationships with the, those in power, including the national police, the military, uh, the presidential palace, the house of uh, representatives. So it's kind of hindered them from effectively holding power accountable. So that's what we saw. And so we decided, okay, let's, let's fill this uh, news uh, desert in Indonesia. Project Multatuli's team practiced slow journalism, which is pretty unique in the country. This means their stories are often long form and cover issues in great depth and detail. They publish around three of these each week. Check out the show notes to learn more, where you'll also find information on their funding structure. Now, only a few months after launching in September 2021, one of their journalists came forward with a story on a sexual abuse case, a taboo issue in the conservative country. So I still remember the date now. It's like sort of like a historical moment for us. The pandemic was almost over, but not, not really over, right? We heard stories about newspapers shut down or have to fire a lot of journalists. The capacity of newsrooms all over Indonesia is diminishing, yeah. In this context, a freelance journalist who is based on the Indonesian island Sulawesi, which is east of Borneo, told Multatoli's editorial team about a story which he'd heard a year before. This story concerned a woman called Lydia, which is not her real name. He heard this story from a local legal aid institute uh, saying that we have a client trying to seek justice for years. She's from Lubu Timur, which is 12 hours driving from Makassar. Makassar is the provincial capital of South Sulawesi. So Lubu Timur is a, a small city. I mean, in Indonesia, pa- patriarchy, of course, yeah. Uh, I mean, male-dominated culture, yes. But it's even more special there. It's even more macho there. <laughs> and this woman, she's a mother of three young children. All of them under 10 at, the, at that time. Uh, one day she found out that her children had these wounds in the genital area. And when she asked them, they accused their, their own father, already divorced, not living in the same home. So she uh, first reported her case to the government agency that handles women protection and children protection. But the first thing she did, the, the, the civil servant, the first thing she did was calling uh, the husband because she said, oh, I know him. He's actually my colleague uh, because uh, the husband is a civil servant. Let me call him here. And he came and then the children hugged him and the civil servant told the Lydia said, see, they're okay. So you're just delusional.
Lydia didn't give up. First, she went to the local police who adopted the same attitude as a civil servant and refused to believe her. She then drove for 12 hours to the provincial capital, Makassar, to report the case to the police there. But they also dismissed it. While researching the story, the journalist called the police to ask why they had dropped the case. So the police said, like, ah, yeah, I remember that story. That crazy lady. Of course, we dropped the case because the children hugged the father. And experts of sexual abuse in children said that the relationship between the victims and the perpetrators is so complex that it's possible that the, uh, the victims love the rapists or whatever, right? But they didn't know that. They, they didn't have the knowledge about that. So after learning about the story of police in action, Effie and her colleagues gave it the green light as it aligned perfectly with their focus on sensitive and underreported issues. Knowing it could be contentious, there was then a rigorous editing process. He edited that story for quite a long time. I think it took weeks, yeah, until he finished because he has to like really check all the documents, really like communicate with all the lawyers. We also have a legal aid institute for the press checking the story for us. But we didn't know that it would lead to something that will make her name famous nationwide. The story came out on October 6, 2021. We were only five months into our (laughs) operation. A lot of people didn't know us. The police also didn't know projectmultatuli.org. And when the, the story came out, our chief editor, Fahri Salam, he tweeted the story within two, three hours. I think it's been retweeted 60,000 times. And then our website went down. And we were thinking, okay, this is because we are so small. Our server is like very small, not the expensive one. So we couldn't probably withstand the traffic. And then we have an IT consultant. Uh, Late in the night, he said, yeah, yeah, I thought this only because our server is very small. But uh, apparently there is this sort of like a, a, a pattern that makes him suspicion that this is actually a DDoS attack. A DDoS attack means a denial-of-service attack, and it's when a website is flooded with fake requests that overwhelm the server, making it crash. And while this was happening to Project Multitoli, the police responded to their story on their social media channels. The police also, like, screen capture our story and then stamp hoax on our story, publish that screen capture on their Instagram account, saying that this is a hoax. And they made a post mentioning the real name of Lydia. And we were like, God. Once the police revealed the real name of Lydia on social media, the team had to act quickly to protect both the source and also the journalist. We tried to get money from donors to finance uh, Lydia's security. 
she and the family, the, the three children left the city for several weeks. And we find the money to provide her with a safe house for almost, I think, a month. We also set aside some money for legal aid, for safe house for the journalists, because we are up against the police, right? I mean, they're like one of the most powerful state institutions in Indonesia right now. And the journalist says that a lot of other journalists here is taking care of him. I think the first week of that story, journalists took turn visiting his house. Sort of like, you know, telling those in power that, hey, he's under our care. While Multatuli's team were trying to make sure the journalist and the source were both protected, they were also busy responding to requests for the story. As having learned about the digital attack, other outlets... From student press to large national newsrooms wanted to republish it as an act of solidarity. Multatuli's team received around 60 requests and Effie gave them the story if they promised to publish it in full with their illustrations and hashtag. God, for three days, all of us, I think, we, we slept only like a few hours. So in the end, about maybe, I don't know, 30 maybe, republish our stories, including big media outlets. Uh, and also, we, we accompany that story with a hashtag, Percumala por Polisi, which means there's no use of you reporting to the police. Apparently, it triggered a lot of uh, Twitter users of their own stories reporting to the police. And then Twitter went, like, went wild. With that hashtag, for three days, it was trending nationwide. A lot of people, not just sexual abuse, but a lot of people say that, okay, I lost my motorcycle, but the police, uh, instead of like investigating my case, the police asked me for money. Stories like that. And we were like, we were sort of like scared, excited, but also scared, very, very scared. And within a week, the national police chief made a speech that I am aware there is this hashtag, Percumala por Polisi. And then he told his subordinates to like accept this as a constructive criticism for you to work harder. Soon after the chief made his speech, Project Multatuli's website came back online and the police deleted their social media posts. These were the posts that claimed the story was a hoax and revealed the names of Lydia and her ex-husband. The police also reopened the case for a while, but Effie didn't have high hopes. From the beginning, we thought that, okay, the police just want to silence the public uproar. Because if they're very serious about it, they should send an independent team from the national police to South Sulawesi and Lugu Timur to check. But no, they didn't. So in the end, they dropped the case again. After months of reinvestigation, we were kind of uh, very worried that the husband would charge a libel lawsuit to Lydia and to us. And apparently, uh, he already reported Lydia to the police for defamation. I'm sure you'll be pleased to hear that the police didn't pursue Lydia's ex-husband's defamation case. But, just as Effie and her team feared, he also tried to file a complaint about Project Multatuli as well. 
Thankfully, they were protected by a press law, which meant that his lawyers had to go through the press council and not the police. In the end, his lawyers failed to file a complaint within the given period. Despite having to deal with these kind of consequences, Project Multatuli continues to publish stories on sidelined issues. We still publish several stories on, on sexual abuse. One of them was in the Islamic boarding school, a popular one. So you mentioned Project Multatuli in the police. <laughs> no one likes you. Um, when I established these organizations, follow the labor law, pay all the tax, make our financial reports publicly audited, and I always, always tell all those who work with us, don't be stupid. You know what the police could do. They could just arrest you arbitrarily and put some evidence, you know, to charge you with some false. That happened. So don't violate traffic, I said to my friends. <laughs> Brave New Media. When I heard Effie's story, I was really inspired by Project Multatuli's unwavering commitment to hold those in power to account, despite the many challenges they faced and continue to face. As even after recording this episode, they were met with another digital attack. But this time, they were better prepared and knew who they had to turn to for support. But I wanted to understand in more detail what media organizations like Multatoli can do to protect themselves. So I spoke with Rebecca Vincent, who is a director of campaigns at Reporters Without Borders. I started off by asking her what she made of Effie's story. Well, firstly, Effie was so inspiring and I just thought immediately wanted to meet her and to know her. Um, you know, I, I loved how she recounted what happened and the care that she took with her source in particular, which I think shows exactly what kind of a journalist she is. I, I should note I've never met her and I hadn't previously um, had experience with Project Multatuli, but that was what I first took away was what an inspiring journalist she was and, and really that uh, attention to the safety of her source as a primary concern. Rebecca, can you tell us about Indonesia on the RSF World Press Freedom Index? With our new World Press Freedom Index edition for 2023, Indonesia is ranked 108 out of the 180 countries and territories that we survey. So around a little past the midpoint, in fact, um, which, you know, is not as terrible as some of its neighbors, for sure. And would you say the methods of intimidation that Evi and her team faced, like the digital attack and her sources being doxxed, would you say these are common methods across the world? It's certainly things that we've noted in other places, although I was pretty shocked at how blatantly the police doxed her source. Um, that is that shows maybe a degree of impunity. But one thing I thought when listening to Effie's story is that she could also use some support from advocacy and campaigning organizations. Right. Um, because it's that the police to behave in that way, they would have known that they wouldn't face repercussions for doing so. And I, I think that shows a really emboldened position that worries me as well for maybe Effie's safety, safety and that of her team as well. Um, but certainly online um, threats and attacks such as the DDoS attacks that their website has faced, um, those are common around the world too. 
And uh, more generally across the world, would you would you say this kind of intimidation by authorities is on the rise? Well, unfortunately, each year the new edition of the index shows a worsening global situation. This has been the case for some time, and it certainly has been increasing for a number of years now that we've seen sort of pressure and attacks against investigative journalists in particular. And I thought that's why this story really resonates internationally, because um, they were exposing corruption and more often we're seeing journalists targeted in countries that are meant to be at peace, even through very violent means, which luckily is not the case that we're dealing with here. Um, but we're seeing a real backlash against powerful figures, sometimes those in power um, in terms of government or sometimes, you know, figures linked to organized crime or, or others who, who really want to silence critical journalism. We can't always, um, you know, assume that these attacks could just be verbal. Um, so I think that precautions would be needed to ensure their safety physically as well. And how do you think kind of the international community can better protect and support media outlets um, facing these kinds of intimidation? In the first instance, I'd say practical support. So things like, uh, you know, digital security support. Um, that's a very practical thing that's available. But I'm working on the campaign side at RSF. So I, I was thinking about, you know, really this, the blatant impunity of the police involved here. And there could be a bit of a disconnect with the government because Indonesia, in some ways, does seem to care about its international image. And I think um, the new president has has made some efforts towards improvements. But this sort of behavior from police is not just isolated in this case. I've seen the other journalist cases that we're aware of in the country uh, often are related to investigating local corruption, too. So there's a disconnect between sort of what the government is trying to do and what police who are authorities here are doing. Um, if I were to get involved in this case as a campaigner, I would really look at where could I press the government itself? Is it the president? Are there other officials who really could help um, try to truly implement reforms uh, to address this behavior by police, which is only going to tarnish Indonesia's international image when it comes to press freedom? And with, you know, smaller outlets like Project Multatuli, how do you get them to be able to bring that case up and advocate for their right or use international kind of pressure? Well, speaking out on this story helps. And I'm, I'm hoping that will bring in some some support and some more international recognition of their important work there. Um, but I think there's other ways as well. There's networks of investigative journalists. Um, sometimes there's international fora, international conferences that bring uh, media outlets and uh, NGOs together. So I would say, you know, anything that we can do to encourage and even financially support um organizations like like this to to plug in more to the international context. But one thing I also want to say is part of the story that I was encouraged about was to hear that there did seem to be some useful intervention by the press council, because that's not always the case in every country. In some countries, press councils can really robustly defend journalists that are being targeted. But in some places, we see them co-opted by corrupt states. Um, so I was actually encouraged that in this case, they seemed to have been useful. And that, so that can be, you know, a real ally possibly for even others who might be facing such pressure. Oh, and that's a really good point. And is the kind of solidarity that Project Multatoli had, you know, with all of the other media outlets publishing their story when their website was was down, is that common? Do you see that quite a bit with the, with the cases you work on? 
not enough. And I think it's really important, not just for morale, but, you know, just as a as a fighting back tactic as well to show those that want to silence critical voices or shut down uh, reporting into topics like this um, to show that that won't be successful. So I think we need more of that, not just with smaller newsrooms, but internationally to more solidarity of media and uh, the free expression community. Um, in support of those who are facing these sorts of threats, because it's not just about uh, the work that Pr Project Mutatuli is doing, it's about what they're exposing, and that impacts people throughout Indonesia, but also internationally. I always talk about how our 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 information systems are interconnected globally, and so when, when we have anybody silenced in any place, even in a local context, um, it does impact all of our right to know. Brave New Media. This is asymmetrical battle. We are up against a very powerful with a lot of money. We don't have that much money. But in terms of power, although we are not as powerful as them, the solidarity between journalists, solidarity between civil society organizations that believe in press freedom, that believe in freedom of expression, we are sort of feeling reassure because of that. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please do rate, review and subscribe. Brave New Media is a co-production between BBC Media Action and Holy Mountain. The presenter was Mahataki. The producer was Saskia Black. The executive producers were Mahataki, Paul Harper and Boss Temple Morris.